WVUA-FM, Tuscaloosa. Any opinions expressed in this program are those of the host and do not represent the thoughts or opinions of 90.7 WVUA or the University of Alabama. Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 3 of Pulse of the Nation. I'm Brandon Vick. This is a place to get the hottest political stories from local, state, and national sources. We are going to start off national. So if you remember, you know, all the Burisma stuff, you know, the House Republicans are going to impeach, you know, they're going to impeach Joe Biden for this because Hunter Biden has connections to Burisma and there are allegedly bribes being put in the situation. But one of the House GOP star witnesses, a former FBI informant by the name of Alex Smirnoff, is found to be making a lot of that up. And that is where we're going to start off with. The uh, federal prosecutors filed and said that Alex Smirnoff admitted to the authorities after his arrest that, uh, quote, officials involved with Russian intelligence were involved in passing a story about Hunter Biden. Yeah. That is not great when one of the House GOP star witnesses against Joe Biden and Hunter is has extensive contacts with the Russian intelligence agencies that would, you know, include those who help run overseas assassinations. And <laughs> yeah, that's not great. Not great. There was another one who was described as a high-ranking uh, Russian foreign intelligence service officer. Not great when the resistors who who have been screaming Russia, Russia, Russia for the past eight years. Not great when they get turn out to be partially proven true. Like at least personally for me, I don't like it when the worst fears about you know foreign in- interference in a presidential election or any U.S. election for that matter. I do not like it when that turns out to be partially true. Now, granted, Alex Smirnoff is a U.S. and Israeli citizen. He's a dual citizen, and he did volunteer. Alex Smirnoff did to turn over his Israeli passport. Federal prosecutors say that he could just get a new passport at any time at a consulate. So, uh, apparently, the prosecutors said that in addition to lying about the whole Hunter Biden bribe thing, Smirnoff apparently lied about them his his uh, liquid funds. Apparently he has six million in liquid funds, which he didn't disclose to pretrial services. He only told them he had a thousand five hundred cash on hand and five thousand in a personal checking account. Yeah, not exactly great to lie about that either. That's just gonna be more, you know, charges for you as well. But uh I'll just say my piece on this as far as the political implications of this. It's again Kind of like the Here Report, which you know we're probably going to be talking about a lot in a couple of weeks. It's not going to have much of an impact, I don't think, because I mean, there's for this particular instance, there's so many stories that are coming out in a particular news cycle that, at least in the immediate future, it's not going to affect really any poll numbers. The only thing this is going to affect is James Comer having massive egg on his face because this is your star man. And your star man is apparently a Russian asset who has been making a lot of the stuff that, you know, y'all are using in your impeachment, you know, proceedings. He made it all up. And 
where do you go from there? I mean, House Democrats have already called for Republicans to give up the goose. Just give it up. I mean, you don't have the evidence because the evidence you did have were faked and fabricated by Russian intelligence. So, uh, so uh, yeah. I mean, who knows how deep this whole thing goes? I mean, who knows if, you know, foreign intelligence services are going to have much more of an impact than they already have. Who knows what interference they're going to be running, whether they're going to be running AI robocalls, which we'll get to at the end of the podcast for something involving New Hampshire, and, you know, whether they're going to do some of what they've usually done, not just Russia, but China and Iran and some of the other nations and Israel, too, that might have, Saudi Arabia, too, that might have somewhat of a an interest in trying to determine who will be the next president of the United States for their own for their own purposes. And we'll see where that goes from there. And uh, I mean, we'll see how much egg you know Jim Comer gets on his face. I don't exactly think it'll be much amongst the Republican base, but as far as Democrats are concerned, I mean, they view this impeachment as nothing more than a hoax. What isn't a hoax is Donald Trump's legal fees. Uh, yeah. <laughs> His legal fees could probably cover about five of the production rooms in which we use to record the podcast. Yeah, well over $400 million that he has to pay in settlements. You know, there's, you know, there's two settlements to E.G. Carroll in regards to defamation that total over $90 million. And then the big one in terms of the fraud case out in New York He's apparently on the hook for $355 million without interest, may I add. If you add interest, that goes to well over $400 million. And I believe in terms of the total legal fees, over $500 million. Now, it came out recently that uh, a New York judge by the name of Arthur Engeron is not going to delay the enforcement of those penalties. Trump's legal team asked them to push it back by 30 days. That Engeron pretty much dismissed, like flat out, you know, basically saying they failed to justify any basis for a stay. So, uh, yeah. The interest part of it is that $87,000 in interest get added to that amount each day on top of what has already been added. So, like, every day you're not paying the settlement, boom, another $87,000. That's more than what a lot of us make in a year, mind you. So this isn't some, like, drop in the bucket. Like, I know Donald Trump is rich. I get that. He's not that rich, though, which it becomes very apparent when you look at some of his uh, campaign activities. When you look at the RNC, when you look at the Save America Pack and all the other things that Donald Trump has been using to fundraise, that fundraising, oh, dear God, it is, I'll be honest, it's terrible. Like, as far as January 2024 cash on hand goes, what I mean is that at the end of January and at the start of February, the Biden campaign, I think, had $130 million cash on hand. You know how much the Trump campaign had? Just $30 million. $30 million cash on hand. And which is compounded by the fact that, you know, the Trump campaign has been paying a lot of these legal fees, which, uh, yeah, that is, I think, one way to pay off you know, the massive legal fees, just uh, 
get your campaign supporters to do it. Some of whom are donating like 10, 15, 50, 100. Some of them are donating significant chunks of their savings into your into your campaign. And I'm going to be completely honest. I don't think this is a good way to run a campaign, which the polls have you up. But is that going to be the case when you're not able to run as many ads as the Biden campaign is? Because let's just talk about the legal fees for a second. You know, as far as the January expenditures go, as far as just January 2024, Legal fees went for over 20%, in fact, probably over 25% of the entire Trump campaign's expenditures in regard to January 2024. Of the roughly $15 million spent by Trump's you know, two main committees, $3.7 million went to his legal fees. And this, these aren't for the settlements. These are just to pay your lawyers who you're paying top dollar for these lawyers. These lawyers that, by the way, I mean, they must not be doing a very good job if you have over $400 million in settlements you have to pay. But uh, but essentially what's been going on is that these campaign committees are be giving each, having to give each other refunds. You're moving money around. You know, and it's just... What, what, it's like, what is going on? At the Trump campaign. And I think I've covered it recently. The whole, you know, the Republican Party isn't doing too hot in regards to cash on hand. It's not going to get much better if Trump's plans for the RNC come to fruition. Because I think I discussed earlier that Ronna McDaniel is going to be on a way out as RNC chair. And Donald Trump's handpicked choice to replace her is Michael Watley, the head of the North Carolina GOP. And you know who the co-chair is supposed to be? Large, large Trump. I cannot pretend to be serious about that. Just give me a bit of, give me a bit of applause for a second. Laura Trump. Seriously, really, her. I look. I have a few things on my mind about why you would pick Laura Trump to be the RNC co-chair. First and foremost, it's plain nepotism. I was like, oh, yeah, you're just making the Republican Party the literal party of Trump if you just staff it with your family members. Like, yeah, but totally. That's a great way to run one of the two major political parties in this country. And also, Laura Trump expressed interest in the RNC helping to pay Trump's legal bills. Again, the Biden campaign has nearly over $100 million more cash on hand than you. That's not even including the future four pack. That's not even including their the dark money that they have. So it's probably a lot more. And oh yeah, guess what? The future four pack has already committed $250 million to run ads in the seven swing states. You know, in Arizona, in North Carolina, in Nevada, in Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. They're going to be running those for months. Get up all the TV markets that you got. You're going to be running that. How is the Trump campaign going to respond? It's like, yeah, who's going to take up more of the TV time? 
especially because the Biden campaign has been raising significantly more money than the Trump campaign. These aren't even just the you know, leadership packs or anything like that. We're just talking about the campaigns themselves. Like, as far as Trump goes, what? You're raising less than $14 million. Yeah, Joe Biden's raising 47, not 47, 42, $42 million. As far as, you know, if you combine it with the DNC compared to less than $14 million if you combine it with the RNC. The RNC, by the way, having the least cash on hand, true cash on hand, and just adjusted for inflation, it is at in two and a half decades. This is a presidential election, which by all odds, you should be favored to win. But your nominee is Donald Trump. And I've thought of, I've thought this for months. Yeah, Joe Biden is not a particularly strong incumbent, but I believe Donald Trump is so weak of a challenger, has so many liabilities, that the Democrats might just win that election by default. It's, it's just the homage that people might not like Biden, but they hate Trump. And I'm not just talking about a lot of the Democratic base voters who are lukewarm at best in regards to Joe Biden. I'm talking about the swing voters, you know, your moderate, white, college educated, you know, suburban voters in Mesa or in, you know, or in Rockingham County, New Hampshire or in, you know, Cabarrus County, North Carolina. That, you know, they might adore Nikki Haley. Like they vote for them in the for her in a Republican primary, and we have one that's going to be coming. You know, on the day that this podcast gets released, South Carolina Republicans are going to be voting in that primary, and Donald Trump is going to clean Nikki Haley's clock. He's probably going to win by over thirty points, and he's probably going to win every single county too. Like, I know Nikki Haley usually wins like one county. You know, but she didn't in Nevada when she was running against Little Lair, and I don't think she's going to win one in her home state. I don't think Richland County is going for her. Sorry. Especially because the South Carolina College Republicans endorsed Trump. Same thing with Clemson. Like, it's over. It is quite literally over for Nikki Haley. But she's still going to fight. And that is going to prevent Donald Trump from being able to collaborate more with the RNC in regards to, you know, joint fundraising committees and all that stuff. Because Nikki Haley is still going to be running. And until Donald Trump gets the necessary amount of delegates to win the nomination, then his campaign won't be able to coordinate with the RNC. And oh yeah, speaking of Nikki Haley, she raised more than you in January. Yeah, you're being outraised by someone who you're probably going to be beating by 50 points nationwide. How does that make you feel if you're in the Trump campaign? It should make you feel like you're stuck in a five alarm fire situation. Like people are warming up to your candidate. Donald Trump's favorable ratings are the highest they've been in years because Partially because I think voters, a lot of voters have short memories. Like, you don't remember a lot of the stuff about the Trump, you know, presidency and all that. The Biden campaign has a lot of money to play around with. They're like, you cannot go band for band with them because they're just going to outraise you. They're going to outspend you, probably. Like, they're going to be able to define you to these voters. Say, hey, remember all the crazy stuff you did as president? And here's a lot of the crazy stuff he's going to do if he wins a second term. You know, for better or for worse, Biden is a known quantity. Donald Trump is also a known quantity, 
But a lot of people have sort of forgotten about a, a lot of the stuff that he has done as president. If you're the Biden campaign, yes, your candidate's trailing in the polls, but the economic sentiment is going up. You know, you're, you're doing a lot better on that, especially because all the good economic news that has been coming out, not just the jobs, but also the stock market. And you also have a lot of favorable issues that you're going to be able to use in bashing the Trump campaign and potentially getting your poll numbers up and getting favored to win another presidential election. We're going to be talking about that soon. We are going to pivot to Wisconsin, however, because I think this is the biggest news story that we are going to cover this week. There are new legislative maps in Wisconsin. The era of Republicans, you know, having gerrymandered the state legislative maps, you know, state house, I think a state assembly and state senate there, I'm not sure. But uh, Wisconsin has fair maps. And uh, Tony Evers signed his maps into law in Wisconsin. And what is the composition of those uh, house maps and senate maps? Well, Wisconsin is a purple state, as I think a lot of us know. It voted for Biden very nearly by less than a point. In 2022, it voted for Republican Ron Johnson for Senate by a point, voted for Tony Evers, the Democratic governor, by about three points. Very swingy state. For the new Wisconsin House maps, it's a lot of pretty very competitive districts. It's uh, Trump 150 districts, Biden 149 of them. So the median district is somewhat to the right of the state, not nearly as the right right of the state as it was, say, in 2018. Like, if you've seen some of those stats where Democrats win, like, a, basically a landslide in the popular vote in Wisconsin, but Republicans get, like, 63 out of, like, 99 seats. Like, come on. And then what you have now in the Senate, Tony is, uh, I think, Biden 18, Trump 15. Tony Evers won the same 18 compared to the Republican uh, nominee for governor, Tim Michaels. So very competitive maps. You know, both sides are going to be able to actually win a legislative chamber to shocking, I know. But the immediate impact is going to be in the House because everybody's going to be up in the House. The Senate has staggered terms, so Democrats won't be able to flip the state Senate until, you know, until at the very best 2026. But... With the Democratic Party of Wisconsin being one of the most competent parties in the nation, you know, being able to run competitive races in more areas, not just in the, the traditionally Republican suburbs of Milwaukee, which Democrats have actually been doing pretty excellent in getting a lot of good positive trends. What about the more the competitive rules of the uh, of the state? A lot of the more you know blue leaning districts containing a lot of the southwest of Wisconsin, which you're going to be able to run candidates in. That is something that I think deserves a mention and attention as well, because in more areas, you're going to see more TV ads, more you know, ground game, more get out the vote efforts, more presence of a state or local party or candidate that you know is only going to ratchet the sort of political pressure you know in a state like Wisconsin which is going to be one of the states that determines who becomes president in 2024 and i know there's a lot to say about down ballot effects from up top what about up ballot effects from down because these down ballot candidates, if you run them, if they run really good competitive races even if they don't win if they outperform the top of the ticket they can drag that top of the ticket up with them a little bit too because, you know, it's a lot easier 
if you're squeamish about voting for a Republican candidate, you know, for president, it's a lot easier to do that if you have a Republican candidate for state Senate. If you have a Republican candidate for U.S. House in a deep blue district whom you really like and who you will want to vote for, then it's much easier to say, okay, fine, I'll vote for the Republican for president too. Because the same way for Democrats in red districts as well. Like, there is a sort of up-out effect that I don't think needs to be overlooked, especially like in the Fox Valley. A lot of competitive districts now in the Fox Valley, in Green Bay, Appleton, Oshkosh, you know, these all these particular cities. And again, sorry if I mispronounced any of these names. I'm not a Wisconsin native, far from it. I mean, if I was a Wisconsin native, I'll be completely honest. Uh, <laughs> I'll be completely honest, I'd probably be one of the more insufferable Packers fans out there just because of the Super Bowl win a decade ago and also because of, like, you know, obliterating the Dallas Cowboys thing. But I'm not a Packers fan, and I'm just happy for them that they were able to put up a very good fight in the playoffs as a seven seed. But that's besides the point. Wisconsin-related, yes. Politics-related, no. I mean, we're not talking about Aaron Rodgers here or anything like that. I mean... For all I know, he's probably still registered to vote in California somewhere. But uh, yeah, we'll also be talking about California and all these other states with competitive house races and talking about the up ballot effects as, you know, as, you know, the election cycle goes on. You know, talk about a lot of these competitive Orange County seats in California and whatnot. But that's the topic for another time. We're still on Wisconsin. And and with every, with a competitive state such as Wisconsin, and I know I'm probably going to be repeating myself a lot when I say this, like every competitive seat is going to draw money. And I think the Democratic Party of Wisconsin is there are a lot better fundraisers than the Republican Party of Wisconsin because the Democrats have been a lot more competent at winning statewide elections, especially ever since 2016, than the Republican Party has been. And going for 2018. Scott Walker, for whatever reason, he had a lot of pull, especially in suburban Milwaukee. But Tony Evers ran a race. He won that race. And we are seeing the results of such elections. Like, one of the mottos that we have here is that elections matter. You know, from the local city council races all the way up to U.S. president. Every vote counts. Every election matters. Because especially when it comes to these very close elections, you know, especially the local races, one vote could literally make all the difference. I mean, one of the favorite examples I like to pull up is right here in Alabama. You know, Walt Maddox won the uh won the uh, Tuscaloosa County in his race for governor by one vote, and that was his own. Even more recently in 2022, I think for a Conecuh County Sheriff, the Democrat in that down-ballot race won that race by one vote, you know, over the Republican. So, like, it's like this is still happening today. These very close elections are decided in very rare cases by one vote, but it's like tens of votes, hundreds of votes, maybe even up about for president, for Senate. They could be decided by, by even thousands of votes, like out of like millions cast, especially in a close state as Wisconsin is. It's a possibility, especially because the legislative Republicans have decided that Milwaukee shouldn't get an extended time besides what they got in 2020 to count their absentee ballots for these future elections. 
And so that is going to be, again, another major contention. I mean, I mean there is all the loss talk about Milwaukee and ballot fraud and all that sort of stuff, but that might draw more Republican money. Like if you're fighting these for these ballot fraud claims, that's if you're setting aside money for that, that's going to take away from these competitive state assembly and state senate districts that you have to win in order to keep a majority, not just in 2024, but throughout the rest of the 2020s. Like this could be a major problem for a state party which has faded into being, you know, as far as statewide goes, as to being not really a secondary power but a party that is inferior in competence, that is inferior in strategy in relation to the Wisconsin Democrats. Part of that is because I think the Wisconsin Democrats have had to basically fight a thousand times as hard as the Wisconsin Republicans in order to win, especially because of the entrenched power the Republicans gave themselves after the 2010 red wave when Scott Walker came to office and when and when you had the you know the red map come in in Wisconsin that just sort of brutally gerrymandered these uh, state legislative districts for Republicans. Republicans, you got you were able to coast for almost a decade over a decade actually on these uncompetitive you know state legislative races which you could win very easily you'd hold the majority you didn't have to do anything you didn't have to campaign the seat was won for you and you basically got to do what you wanted because i mean look when the democrats have to win 60 percent of the statewide vote in a competitive state as Wisconsin is to even win, even think about winning a majority, that's when you know. You know, that that's when you know that your maps might be a brutal, brutal gerrymander. Because like your vote pack, you're packing the vote in Milwaukee and in Madison. And the rural vote is distributed like there is bad geography for Democrats in Wisconsin because their rural vote is distributed to such an extent, like especially in the south of Wisconsin, in the southwest of Wisconsin, where it's like the Republicans will have like a slight advantage, but like it's not like you're not having 70, 30 advantages until you go to like the northeast of Wisconsin. Like you have 60, 40, 55, 45 advantages, you know, 58, 42. You know, it's the sort of thing where, you know, the rural vote isn't that Republican, but the Republicans are spread out in such a way which you could very easily draw six, you know, Republican, you know, U.S. House districts where you could draw 60 plus very safe Republican, you know, state assembly districts. You could draw a very safe Republican majority in the state Senate. That is not happening. And what was very interesting is that Tony Evers's maps were passed by Wisconsin Republicans and they were and. The Democrats, except for one of them, actually rejected it. Why would the Democrats reject their governor's maps? Well, let me just say they trust Robin Voss and the Wisconsin GOP as far as they can throw them. And I'm not sure that you can throw Robin Voss very far. Like they've seen a lot of the what they believe are dirty tricks that he's used to keep power and all that sort of stuff. They just didn't trust him. It's like, well, why are you passing these maps? Like are you going to try and file a lawsuit to delay their implementation? Like, what's going on here? And that's why they rejected it, just because they don't trust the Wisconsin GOP to engage in good faith. But for the Wisconsin GOP, it's like, well, okay, 
either we pass Tony Evers' maps or we reject them, let the courts implement a map that's going to put us in a minority in the both the state senate and the state house. And that would be a very bad thing because the court was – the court accepted the maps that were implemented and said that the ones that were signed – that were drawn up by Democratic groups were the most fair. And Tony Evers' maps are not as good for Democrats as those other Democratic-drawn maps. So essentially, Wisconsin Republicans are like, OK, swallow this pill you know, just so that, you know, you have a decent chance of holding majorities, a majority in the state house and by 2026 still being able to hold a majority in the state Senate. But, uh, yeah, as far as how this will affect, you know, future contests, I mean, again, if you live in a state of Wisconsin, like your state has been very competitive for a decade. That's not changing anytime soon. But this is a lot more to do with the down ballot, you know, the f- democratic policies now have a chance to be passed. Like you can fight them on the policy, not just saying, here's what we would do if we were in power. Now you get to say, here's what we will do if we get power. It's not when you have the chance. If for some reason you get power, it's now if we get power. Like, and that I think is a very big difference because you get to say, okay, we can actually win a chamber. We can affect policy change. You know, if not after 2024, after 2026, you hold a governorship, you get the legislative trifecta, and boom, you're like Minnesota with the policies that they have. You know, a lot of what was passed by Scott Walker, you can undo that. And if that's not going to fire up Wisconsin Democrats, I don't know what will. So I think for the back half of the 2020s, it's going to be similar. You know, Democrats are going to be a lot more fired up than the Republicans are, at least in the statewide level, because you're working to undo a legacy and you're tr- and you have the opportunity to enforce such a radical change in Wisconsin policy that you can get, you know, you can get the progressives, especially in Madison, who want to just basically change everything, get the radical changers in. And you can also get the squeamish moderates in the Milwaukee suburbs who don't like the direction the Republican Party is going. So, yeah, very big news out of Wisconsin. Tony Evers has also asked for a challenge to Wisconsin congressional maps. I don't know if that's going to succeed in time for the 2024 elections. But with Mike Gallagher's retirement, if that if there is a change in the congressional mass, we'll obviously let you know about it. Mike Gallagher's former seat, Wisconsin State Congressional District, which would be in the Fox Valley in this instance, it could be drawn to be a lot more competitive. That's all I'll say about that. Now, on to general discussions about 2024. I think that I need to dispel some truths. And a lot of these truths you heard from me before, you know, not just in season two, but in season one. Like, let's start out with the first thing. The 2024 presidential election is going to be between Joe Biden, the Democratic nominee and the incumbent president, and Donald Trump, the Republican nominee and the former president of the United States. That has been the truth ever since Joe Biden announced he was running for re-election last March. I think it was last March. It was been nearly a year. And 
That's not going to change unless one of them dies. If Joe Biden dies or is otherwise incapable of running for president again, Vice President Kamala Harris will be the Democratic nominee in that instance. A vice presidential nominee? I don't know. Probably someone like Pete Buttigieg, the you know the former uh, South Bend, Indiana mayor, and who's currently serving as the Secretary of Transportation. If Donald Trump dies, that's why I'll concede some uncertainty. Nikki Haley is running for president. I think mostly to provide a contrast to herself and Trump, and to provide a home for Never Trump Republicans, but also. If Donald Trump is unable to go to the convention because either, you know, I won't say if either he's jailed. It's like if he's if he dies, if Donald Trump dies, then Nikki Haley wants to be in that position to where I have delegates. You know, I can be the consensus choice. You've seen what Nikki Haley does in the polls. She's whooping Joe Biden in a lot of these polls, not just nationally, but Statewide. Okay, if you believe the polls, Nikki Haley would win an over 400 electoral vote landslide. Again, I don't believe those margins for an instant, but there you go. You have those poll numbers from reputable pollsters that you can use to say, hey, if you nominate me, we will win and we will win big. And that is a good motivation as any, especially because you don't know what's going to happen with Trump's legal cases. You know, we've got a few months before the convention. You know, we're going to have a trial start by, you know, by the end of next month. We're going to have jury selection for a trial. And that legal case is going to be running up into the convention. Like, let's look up when the RNC convention is going to be held. Like, it's going to be held on uh, in mid-July. From July 15th to July 18th in 2024 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So again, another Milwaukee, you know, story to add to this whole thing. You know, and and let's be completely honest. Even if Donald Trump is found guilty, if he goes to jail for whatever reason before the convention, he's still going to be the Republican nominee. You can run from prison. Like, look up Eugene Depps. He ran for president, I believe, in 1912. Got a decent chunk of the vote from prison. Donald Trump has an iron grip over half of the Republican base. Well over half of the Republican base, I might add. Like, he is the Republican Party. Like, the Republican Party today is the party of Trump. And people like Nikki Haley... Like, you need to recognize this is not your party anymore. This ain't the party of Mitt Romney. Like, he's gone from the Senate after this year. He's retiring. Boom. Done. And now it is the party of Donald Trump. It is the party of Marjorie Taylor Greene. It is the party of a person like a Lauren Boebert. It is no longer the party of a Ken Buck. It is not the party of a Kathy Morse Rogers or Mike Gallagher. Like, this is the party of Harriet Hageman. This is the party of Mary Miller. Like, the Republican Party is a lot more right-wing than it was a decade ago. And 
And I know that a lot of these Never Trump conservatives have wrestled with that. A lot of them, like you're sticking with the party because, well, we can't have a Democrat in the White House. Some of them just do not like Trump so much that they have decided to vote for Democrats. It's like, well, I didn't leave the party. The party left me sort of thing. That's why Joe Biden won in 2020. Like getting these swings in Maricopa County, Arizona, and Waukesha County, Wisconsin, and, you know, in Oakland County, Michigan, Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, and Cobb County, Georgia, you know, and Washoe County, Nevada, and all these others with high, you know, suburban populations where you would find these sort of never Trump Republicans. Like they put a lot of them pulled the lever for Joe Biden. And that's what did him in because of the losses he sustained amongst, you know, college educated voters, which, you know, heavily populate the suburbs. A lot more than they do the rest of the country, I might add. So we have to set the tone for what the election is going to be. I think a lot of people in the media are being dishonest right now because they are writing for their peers. Their peers do not want a Biden versus Trump rematch, neither do the voters. But media journalists... Y'all are smart enough to understand that the Democratic base wants Joe Biden and the Republican base wants Donald Trump for better or for worse. And that whatever fantasies y'all have about Gavin Newsom or Nikki Haley or Michelle Obama or whatever sort of name you want to throw, I was like, oh, well, he sh Biden should drop out and it should go to a contested convention. Let me tell you something. If the Democratic Party does not invent, if for whatever reason it goes to a contested convention and Joe Biden is not able to serve as president, if for whatever reason he either decides, I don't want to run for president, or he dies. If Kamala Harris, the vice president of the United States, is not nominated for president in that instance, good luck with turning out the black vote, okay? Too bad the black voter base is the core democratic voter base if you are alienating them good luck with winning georgia good luck with winning north carolina they're necessary to win wisconsin pennsylvania michigan they're key to any shot you have of flipping texas or winning the senate or the u.s house if you pass up Kamala Harris, what does that do to the South Asian vote as well? Like, if you're passing up someone as qualified as Kamala Harris is for Gavin Newsom? Are you kidding me? Like, you really think Gavin Newsom would be a better choice than Kamala Harris? I have to ask y'all. Like, this isn't trying, me trying to analyze anything. This is me asking the media. What are y'all spoken to where you think the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party, which made South Carolina the first in the nation primary over the objections of New Hampshire? Why would you think that the Democratic Party delegates would pass a comments? Why would you think Joe Biden would tell his delegates not to vote for Vice President Harris? Why? It makes absolutely zero sense. Why would you do that? If you're going to pass up the, se the second in the command, who is of 
who is of black, who is of South Asian descent, for a white guy from California, the Democrats were losing a landslide. That's not something that the Democratic Party is going to do. So be honest with yourselves. And I know some of the ones who want to abandon Biden are at the very least being honest with themselves. Like they, they don't want Biden to run. Some of them have come to the reality that yes, it would be Kamala Harris. And you have to wrestle with the fact about Kamala Harris's electoral pluses and minuses. And you have to decide if you do not want Biden to run, it's going to be Kamala Harris. Do you think Kamala Harris would have a better shot of beating Donald Trump than Joe Biden? If you think you think she would, then fair enough. Advocate for Kamala Harris to replace Joe Biden. That's your prerogative. It at least makes logical sense that way. But do not, for the love of God, put in your West Wing or your beat fantasies about some random Democratic figure or J.B. Pritzker or Gretchen Whitmer stepping up to replace Biden. That's not going to happen. All right? Let's be honest. Be honest with yourselves, media. Be honest about the political conditions of our time. Be honest that, yes, we have two unpopular politicians who are going to be the main party nominees for president. The only two people who have any prayer of getting 270 electoral votes at this time are Joe Biden and Donald Trump. One of those two is going to be president. On January 20th, 2025, at the end of that day, one of those people is going to be president. So... To all the people on the Democratic side who are wetting the bed once every three hours, to the Republicans who are still trying to lose themselves into thinking that Donald Trump might not be the Republican nominee, you have to admit reality. You have to accept reality. I know a lot of you are probably going through the five stages of grief at this moment in regards to the nomination process. But... I don't know about y'all, but I accepted when Joe Biden ran for re-election. When he announced he was running for election, I'm like, okay, it's going to be a repeat. It's going to be Biden. It's going to be Trump. And the sooner we can operate off of that basis that the presidential election in 2024 is going to be between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, the better. Like, If you're a supporter of Dean Phillips or, God forbid, Marianne Williamson, I mean... I'll pour out a cold one for you. I'll pray for you. You need it. You really need it. Like if you were a supporter of Ron DeSantis or Nikki Healy or Fake Ramasamy or any of the other GOP candidates, same deal. I'm pouring out a cold one for you. <laughs> Cheers. You need it. And uh, yeah, I will say about the primaries though, as far as the Michigan Democratic primary is concerned, as far as the Gaza issues related, I'm going to be very interested to see what that uncommitted number means. I'm not saying that the primaries are worthless because when you have such uncompetitive primaries, the interesting to look thing to look at is see what are the presumptive nominees doing weakest? What are they getting the least amount of vote share? And that usually portends to trends that the other party is going to be able to capitalize on. As for and these 
you know, liabilities are usually in the same places that, you know, the Republicans gained in 2020 and the Democrats gained in 2020. Trump's liabilities are in college-educated suburbs, suburbs and urban areas. We saw this in Iowa and, you know, in Iowa City and Johnson County. We saw this in New Hampshire as well. We even saw it in Nevada, and that with none of, when none of these candidates took home a huge victory, Nikki Haley did her best in Washoe County, the area where the county where Democrats have gotten decent swings out of. As far as Joe Biden is concerned, his main weakness is with you know, with it's rural white voters who live in areas of not very high college education rates. The sort of voters that usual that are usually a lot more moderate and conservative in their disposition, and and are either you know squeamish about Joe Biden or they're already Republicans. Like especially a lot of those rural Nevada counties, where like none of the above, like none of these candidates gets a decent chunk of the vote. Like those voters are maybe registered Democrats, but they're Republicans. Like they're dinos, Democrats in name only. Like these people voted for Donald Trump twice probably. And and if we're going to be completely honest, you know, a lot of those voters aren't exactly gettable. Some are, but some aren't. And it's the same thing with the Republicans. Now, the uncommitted vote in Michigan is going to be very interesting because we will be actually seeing for the first time the scope of the left-wing rebellion against Joe Biden in regards to Palestine. And the interesting thing, not just in Dearborn, not just in like Ann Arbor or Lansing, East Lansing or anything else, I want to see what that vote number is and where is it strongest. Because there we will see where, you know, Joe Biden's weakness from the left, where is it coming from? And how strong is it? Because it could be very strong. It could be a massive liability for Joe Biden. But even if you're not able to fix that, even if you keep the course you're going on with Israel, I'm still not certain that Donald Trump is a favorite. Do you want to know why I think that is? Just look at the Alabama Supreme Court a couple days ago. Like, if, if you were ruling that you were going to make a court ruling that extra uterine embryos, frozen embryos outside of the outside of the womb, if you're going to rule it, those are children and their destruction would be a crime akin to murder, then you've basically temporarily ended IVF care in the state. Like three hospitals, two in Birmingham and one in Mobile, have temporarily paused IVF treatments. What are y'all doing? To two Earth two Republicans, what are you doing? You are doing the exact same things that made you blow the 2022 midterms. You are doing the exact same things that made you blow the 2020 presidential election. Tell me why. Why on God's green earth? Politically. I'm just speaking politically. I'm not even speaking to the one in six Americans who suffer from fertility issues and whom IVF would be a godsend to. I'm not just talking about the, you know, millions of families who have, which have been founded through IVF, not just in the U.S., but around the world. 
I'm not just speaking to, you know, the reproductive health care options that families and that women have. I'm not just speaking to that. I'm speaking about the politics of it. When you're going too far for not just national U.S. House Republicans, but Alabama Republicans, that's when you know you might have stepped on a few rakes. Like the Alabama Republicans and Alabama Democrats, they filed separate bills in the House which would protect in vitro fertilization, which would rule that, you know, these extra uterine embryos, these frozen embryos, they would rule them as not children, as not unborn children or human beings or anything like that. And thus, you know, destruction wouldn't be a crime. Why, why you say that? Well, it's because in the in vitro fertilization process, some of the sperm and egg things like they're not going to be able to survive in the womb. So you, so that destruction is part of the process. As to the ambiguity of the Alabama Supreme Court ruling, you could rule that their destruction would be a crime, and thus you could have forced forced implantation on them, forced implantation of embryos which wouldn't have a chance of surviving, forced miscarriages. Do you think women are going to vote for that? Do you think families going to vote for that? I don't think so. Like the vast majority of the American people, they support in vitro fertilization. Even like three-fourths three of Republicans do. Several Republican politicians, Mike Pence, Michelle Steele, they've conceived families through in vitro fertilization. Granted, this probably speaks to the sort of, oh, when you use it, you understand that it shouldn't be banned or anything like that. Like, like a lot of liberals are going to be like, oh, so you want to protect the access when you have it, when it's affecting you personally. That's when you're going to speak up about it. But again, it speaks to the reason why the Republicans blew the U.S. Senate in 2022. It isn't just because you nominated candidates that would be less appealing than if I cut off my pinky finger. It's also because as much as the American public does not like Joe Biden, the American Republic does not like the GOP more, in my opinion. If they like the GOP more, they like the GOP's candidates and branding, Herschel Walker would be in the U.S. Senate, so would Adam Laxalt, so would Mehmet Oz. That's, and probably, potentially, so would Blake Masters. Now, granted, Blake Masters probably loses anyways because he's Blake Masters, but still, that's at least three U.S. Senate seats you blew. Granted, John Fetterman also beat Dr. Oz by five points. But still, there's multiple U.S. Senate seats you blew because not only did you nominate awful candidates, but there were, but the voters, which in a lot of these states, especially Nevada, Arizona, and Georgia, that had electorates that voted for Trump in 2020, they viewed not just these candidates, but the party as too beyond the pale that maybe just for this one time only, they'll pull the lever for Democrats. And for some of those voters, that one time only becomes two times only, then three times only, and all of a sudden, you're basically a straight ticket Democratic vote. That's just part of what trends are. Go, I allow myself this once, and it's like, oh, I voted for a Democratic candidate, 
the following year, but so I'll vote for a couple more this time out, then I'll vote for a few more the next election, and it just, the domino effect keeps going from there. But I get that Tom Parker, the uh, Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, I get that he is a Dominionist. I get that he is a Christian nationalist. I get that he follows the seven mountains of, oh, we should control all these different aspects of, of the lives, is that people's lives should all be devoted to God. But Tom, I've got to ask you something. Do you honestly think that banning in vitro fertilization is in, is in any way keeping with the pro-life or pro-natalist movements here in America? Like, have we gotten to a point where the pro-life physician is to prevent the conception of thousands of families, thousands of children? Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if you go years into the future. Is that a pro-life physician? No, it's not a pro-life physician. And it what the the thing that this does besides harm the thousands of families that are using in vitro fertilization in the state of Alabama right now is the simple fact that the Democrats are going to be able to use it. The Biden campaign has been going gangbusters on this issue. Ever since the ruling got put in place, half the Biden campaign's tweets have been about this ruling. This is going to be a part of their reproductive health and pro-abortion, pro-choice messaging. This case is going to be used to say the Republicans were never going to stop at abortion. You're going to use Clarence Thomas's cases on Obergefell. You're going to use a Tennessee governor signing a signing something into law that would allow public officials to refuse to certify gay marriages. They're going to use these examples as proof that the Republican Party cannot be trusted to be in power because Biden campaign and other Democrats are going to say the Republican Party wants to take your rights away. That's what they're going to say. And they're going to have the money spread to do it, by the way. You've got like, they're probably going to spend over a billion dollars, not just because of the small money and big money donors that they've got, but also the PACs are just raising a lot more money than the Trump campaigns is. Crucially, they're not having to pay legal fees. They're just not. Not any extraneous legal fees other than what you have like the wilds for. Like you're not paying millions of dollars to lawyers who probably wouldn't know their way around a simple car crash case. Like, I don't get it. I don't get the politics of the IVF ruling. I don't get the sort of like actual ruling itself. I don't get why you would do it. And I do not get why if you are a partisan Republican, the Alabama Supreme Court is full Republican. If you are a committed Republican who wants to see your party win a presidential, a competitive presidential election in 2024, why on God's green earth would you do anything that could jeopardize that? Why would you give the Democrats such an issue that they are going to run on for the next eight and a half months? Why? Like, do you think that it doesn't matter because Trump's going to win anyway? Do you think Trump's appointed by God or something? Spoilers. He's not. He could very well lose. And if he does lose, 
this ruling is going to be why. Or at least a part of it. Oh, also another thing. Another thing in regards to the IVF thing. In regards to the politics of it all. There is a special Alabama State House election on March 26th. About a month out for when this episode is coming out. In House District 10. It used to be Republican. It went for Trump by less than a point in 2020. It's one of the fastest left-trending districts, not just in Alabama, but in the nation. Southern Huntsville, Southern Madison. It has Redstone Arsenal in it. Decently cosmopolitan, especially for Alabama. Like, one thing to note about the Huntsville suburbs, like especially like Madison areas like that, they're not like Vesavia Hills. They're not like Mountain Brook. Like, there's a lot less religious there. And they're going to be a lot more social liberal. And this IVF ruling is only going to serve the Maryland Lance campaign. They're going to pounce on this. Like, they were running a spirited campaign against Madison City Council and Teddy Powell. And as for Marilyn Lance herself, she's endorsed by the former Republican representative of that district, Mike Ball. You know, special election came around, like I discussed this, I believe, in like the end, around the end of season two, because you have David Cole, a former representative there. He got arrested, charged, and convicted for voter fraud. You voted in the wrong district. That's why the special election is coming out. And now you have national attention to this district. This district is going to be seen now by the national parties as how far does Dobbs messaging go? And when you have a ruling from the state of Alabama that says that Republican and conservative judges are going to go beyond abortion in regards to a you know anti-abortion agenda, then that's just something that's going to put the Democrats in a much better spot than they were a week ago. Like... And again, I'm not just speaking about the politics of it all. I'm not just speaking about the impact, the personal impact that's going to have on many families in Alabama and across the nation. Like, like we're both of the nation. How is this going to affect how both presidential campaigns operate? How is that going to affect how Alabama Democrats and Alabama Republicans operate? Is this going to be one of the catalysts for a revival of the Alabama Democrats in suburban areas? If Maryland Lance wins on March 26th, that's going to send shockwaves throughout the nation. And we're going to be covering that, you know, House District 10 special election for the next month. And when those election results come out, we're going to be doing analysis on the week of that, you know, on the week of that election. And not just for the local or the state, but also the national impacts as well. I do want to end off on somewhat of a funny but also serious story. And I say funny because it involves some of the AI robocalls that we were talking about. So do y'all remember when there was this AI robocall that was using Joe Biden's voice in New Hampshire saying, oh, don't vote in the Democratic primary for New Hampshire? Yeah, don't do that. Well, it turns out we now know who did that. So it was a man by the name of uh, Paul Carpenter. He is a magician from New Orleans. And he says that he was hired to use AI software to make that imitation. He says that he created the audio using the robocall, but did not distribute it. He says he was in a situation where someone offered him some money to do something and he did it. He said there was no malicious intent. He didn't know how it was going to be distributed. 
The person who distributed it, the person who hired Paul Carpenter, was Steve Kramer. He is affiliated with the Dean Phillips campaign. He worked on ballot access for him. The problem is the Dean Phillips campaign is like, dude, we might take you to court for this. Like the Dean Phillips campaign and Dean Phillips himself have expressed outrage. They'll never work with him again. They might pursue legal action if these allegations are confirmed to be true. That Steve Kramer used this robocall to sort of try and lower the Biden vote and maybe make Dean Phillips win in New Hampshire, which didn't work. Biden won in a writing campaign by 40 points, a writing campaign that he did not even wage. But the thing that's kind of funny about this whole thing about Steve Kramer is who he's worked for in the past. This guy's worked for Kanye. You know, remember with the birthday party when Kanye West ran for president? Yeah. Steve Kramer has worked for dozens of campaigns. Long-time political operative. One of the more recent ones was that 2020 Kanye for president campaign. Apparently, he's going to be publishing an op-ed very soon by the time this episode comes out. He might have already published it. And granted, there isn't any evidence that the Dean Phillips campaign ever directed Steve Kramer to produce or disseminate that roll call. Kramer was paid a hefty sum, about $260,000 by Dean Phillips' campaign in December and in January. And they were for ballot access work in New York and Pennsylvania. Which you have, you have to canvas for the signatures necessary to qualify for the ballot in these instances. The Dean Phillips campaign said that this work included the production and distribution of a robocall that featured Dean Phillips' voice. Like his actual voice, not an AI voice. Kramer did get out the vote work and all that stuff. But the Dean Phillips campaign says that if Kramer did have any involvement in these robocalls, he did so of his own volition. So, uh, yeah, I'll end this off by saying something. AI is going to be a huge issue in 2024. If not on the policy matter, it is going to play a big role in determining who gets to be president. Because with the advancement of AI... You know, with this open AI and all this other all these other new technologies, there's gonna be AI use either by people affiliated with the campaign or by people who work with the campaign but not of the campaign's volition, who are gonna make these AI videos, AI robocalls, and all this stuff. And it's gonna be used to create a lot of mass disinformation in 2024 in this presidential election cycle. And these AI things, they're going to be wild. And these links that operators will go to to make sure that their candidates win, they're going to go to the max. And I want to warn all of y'all listening now so that y'all are prepared for this in the future. Like, especially around October, do not be surprised if there is a huge AI scandal involving one of the campaigns. And like their use to uh, sort of try to lower another candidate's vote totals, like trying to do disinformation about when to vote, how to vote and all that sort of stuff. Because remember, people that do disinformation, even if they're joking or half joking or something like that, even they say they're joking about it, like you can get put in jail for that. And... This will be something that we have to watch over the over this election cycle because it's going to come up again and it's going to come up again and it's going to come up again. 
So thank y'all for watching. Thank y'all for listening. Season three, episode three of Bolts of the Nation. I am Brendan Vick. We will be back next week for our first March edition of Pulse of the Nation. We'll be getting closer to Super Tuesday, and that will be where we cover which states are going to be voting in Super Tuesday, especially in Alabama, and some of the primaries that are coming up that way. Thank y'all for listening, and this has been the Pulse of the Nation. Any opinions expressed in this program are those of the host and do not represent the thoughts or opinions of 90.7 WVUA or the University of Alabama. WVUA-FM, Tuscaloosa.